Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we're kicking off 2020 with one of my favorite interviews we've ever had on here. This week, it is the great songwriter and producer, Charlie Midnight. Come on, that's one of the best rock names ever. Charlie Midnight? I love it. He's done so many things, worked with so many people. We talk about all of it in here. But you may remember him primarily from his very successful collaboration with the great, the late great Dan Hartman. You guys know how much I love Dan. Those guys came together in the early 80s, and they started having a ton of success writing soundtrack songs. They, they're featured in Breakin', they're featured in Ruthless People, Fletch, and of course this one right here, one of the mothers of all 80s soundtrack songs, Living in America for James Brown from Rocky IV. We learn all about Dan in here. I love Dan and what he was like as a guy. And uh, their partnership eventually comes to an end, not because they're fighting or anything. They just go off and do other things. And Charlie focuses a lot of his time on production. He starts producing people like like Joe Cocker, uh, the Doobie Brothers. We get to nerd out on the Doobie Brothers, so suck it, David Gutierrez. And uh, we, he works with people like Sheena Easton, John Waite, some of the guys from Kiss, Shaka Khan, Joni Mitchell, George Thorogood, all these people in here. In fact, speaking of soundtrack songs, he co-wrote a song that Joe Cocker sings on the Bodyguard soundtrack. You guys know, because of the success of that soundtrack, a lot of people benefited financially very heavily from that. So we talk a little bit about that in here as well. Now, in the early 2000s, it's not exactly my thing, but in the early 2000s, he was very instrumental in launching and mentoring the career of Hilary Duff, the music career of Hilary Duff. That's not really my thing, but she was hugely successful there for a while. And I say that to illustrate that Charlie's career has spanned decades. He's still out there very busy and, uh, and, and being a successful songwriter. So anyway, he's one of my favorites, and I thought he would be really fascinating to listen to talk to, and it turns out he is. This is a fantastic conversation. So many stories. It's the best. I think you guys are going to love this. I hope you're reminded of all this great music that he had a hand in. He called me from his home in L.A. Well, good. Anyway, I was looking. Can I just say quickly, I was looking yeah. at your, I think it's your Facebook, right? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that you're fr- friends with uh, Blanche Napoleon. Uh-huh. She's been on our show. You know, Blanche was Dan Hartman's favorite backing vocalist. I do know that. Yeah, that's what we talked about. I mean, and and I just uh, because of Facebook, uh, just reconnected with her, which was, um, you know, really uh, quite a pleasure. Because uh, um, you know Dan was really, uh, you know, amazing in the way he would uh, choose people to work with because he thought they were talented, and not necessarily, you know, what they if they had a big profile or a small profile, and you know he loved Blanche. So, and I see Joey Esposito. Mm-hmm. He's been on here too. Joey Esposito. We used to work the same dives in Brooklyn. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Man. And then he came out to LA, and they were Brooklyn Dreams, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, with the same dives. And I remember, remember thinking, God, you know, Joey had the best voice ever. Yes, he still that does. Was, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we reconnect. I mean, Facebook's amazing. We reconnected because of Facebook, and I. <laughs> It was pretty cool. So, um, yeah. you know, I thought that was very interesting. Of course, Stephen Bray, who, mm-hmm. you know, we all used to rehearse in New York uh, together, close to each other, and when he started working with Madonna and all, and and all of that. So, I mean, you wow. know, you've got some good people there. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, I've been very lucky. These I um, I come from a journalism background, but I don't I haven't been in the music business or anything like that. I'm just a huge fan. And for years, I was just so consumed with this idea of like, how do people pay their bills? How do they make it work over the long haul when the industry is what it is today or you had one hit 30 years ago? What do you do today? And uh, I thought, I wonder if if I started a podcast and I asked my favorite artists that question, if they would talk to me. And so many of them have. And that was almost that was four and a half years ago. So we've kind of evolved. I mean, we do touch on the business side of these things, and I'll ask you some of that. But it's uh, especially in a guy in a in your situation, you've this is like a you know this is your life mixed with where are they now? Because this is. I, you've done, you've done so much music with so many people that I love that I just want to hear great stories. You know, that's really what we're trying to do here. So, uh, well, you know, great great stories, some that we can't tell, and some that we that. can. Um, you know, but uh, no, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, uh, started out just like Joey and all of us, and you know, in the bars in Brooklyn, and we used to do six sets a night, forty on twenty off. Uh, when you really has had, you know, you had to pay your dues and, you know, pray a lot and light a few candles and hope that somebody, you know, um, can take you to the next step. But it was the one thing we all had in common was this incredible commitment mm -hmm. to uh, to giving up our lives to the pursuit of uh, of of this music that we wanted to do. And yeah. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate. Yeah, I one thing I didn't know about you until I started getting ready to talk about talked with you is that in 1982 you had your own solo album out there, Innocent Bystanders. So I'm guessing originally you talk about singing in these clubs. The idea must have been for you to be on your own two feet, be your own solo artist or in a band or something at one point, right? No, I mean, I started, like I said, I started, yeah, I mean, I had a, a record out in 1982, Innocent Bystander, and it was could have been the least successful record in the history of Columbia. And I survived that. So I figured if I could survive that, I could survive anything. Uh -huh. um, you know, but, you know, like everybody else, you know, I did the clubs, did the clubs, Maxis, Kansas City, all those places. And then um, some attorney showed up um, one day after I really I was knocking around for like 10 years, mm. you know, in the club starting when I was about 17. And um, 
you know, had a band, uh, put a band together, you know, one of the many bands. And at that point, really, I had decided, you know, not to even think of, um, you know, being a rock and roll star, but just to put together a band doing original music. I moved out of Brooklyn, moved into Manhattan. And, um, you know, it was, you know, had really not even thought of looking for uh, um, a record deal at that point. But uh, fortunately, there was a... Uh, a uh, attorney that was at one of my gigs and came up to me afterwards and you know started talking to me and said he represented a a uh, a label and uh, would I be interested and do I have a demo and honestly I had no demos mm -hmm. and um and besides I was really in a very cynical phase very mm -hmm. east village cynical phase and mm -hmm. said I don't give um demos to attorneys left and so a few weeks later he brought back uh somebody from the label and you know we mm -hmm. i got a record deal wow. i have no idea how i have no <laughs> idea how except persistence mm -hmm. and 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 surviving by making the creativity and and in and of itself yeah yeah that's that's how you emotionally survive and 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 any artist that i talked to who has who didn't suddenly hit it when they were 19 or 20 and has it to, and has had to survive that's how that's how they emotionally survive which is probably the single most important thing how do you emotionally survive till you find a way to make a living in this business so mm -hmm. you know especially because yeah. it's changed so much absolutely um now i first became aware of you with your association with dan I um, right. have, and you don't forget a name like Charlie Midnight, and I'm going to ask you how you came up with that name here in a minute, but I am okay. of the opinion that Dan Hartman, and by extension you as well, Dan is one of the finest songwriters I've ever encountered. I didn't know him personally or anything, but I think his music is so perfect and so classic. All the, his, especially the, you know, I Can Dream About You album and those discos, the instant replay and relight my fire the soundtrack work when i think of like what perfect music is it's a lot of that stuff you guys did together how did you become well, close to him well well first of all let me say dan was a genius yeah and anybody anybody that was in the studio with him was in awe mm -hmm. i mean not only did he play every instrument um uh, he had ears, you know, supersonic ears. Mm -hmm. And of course, I I was very fortunate because he's really opened doors for me. Mm -hmm. But uh, Dan, you know, started, you know, producing records, I think, at 15 in in Mechanicsville or Harrisburg, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And, you know, went on from there. But what happened with me, how I connected with Dan, was that uh, my album came out on a label called Decent uh, Decent Records, which was uh, Elizabeth Joel, who was married to Billy at the time. Mm -hmm. That was her label on Columbia wow. uh, with with John Small, who actually John Small was originally in a band with Billy called Attila. Mm, uh, sure, I know a two, that. A, a two-man band, John yes. Small and Billy Joel, with the greatest album cover of all time. Yes, okay. I remember that. <laughs> right? Them wearing yep. Attila outfits. It's, yep. it's amazing. Anyway, so um, so so, so, these, so what happened was, after my record wasn't successful uh, and had the worst tour ever, and I have a trillion terrible stories mm -hmm. about that, when, um, you know, 
they gave me a big send-off apartment at Billy Joel and Elizabeth's apartment on Central Park South. Uh, everybody was there. Billy played piano, and I thought it was the beginning of my, you know, the rock and roll stardom mm-hmm. I had dreamed of, and of course it wasn't. And when you get back off a drag ass a tour, tour like that, and you realize that, you know, you have to find a way to keep yourself together when you ha- when something fails like that. And the reason for success or failure, as you know, there's so many different elements that have to converge. But we always take it personally, mm-hmm. you know, in a situation like that as an artist. So, but luckily for me, somebody, somebody, so Debbie DeCesare, who was working with Decent Records uh, in the office, sent my album to Dan Hartman. Mm. Dan nice. Hartman actually loved it <laughs> and loved my lyrics. Wow. And I mean, it's amazing, right? So when people yeah. ask me, how do you how do you get from here to there? I say, I have no idea except to keep doing good work and keep going if this is what you feel you were meant to do, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so Dan called me up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, uh, actually at that time I was doing the graveyard shift as a legal proofreader uh, while while rehearsing uh, another band because I wasn't going to be given another record deal and mm-hmm. decent records uh, basically dissolved. Um, so uh, he gave me a call out of nowhere and uh, he said, hey, this is Dan Hartman and, you know, would you like to get together? I'd like to, you know, talk about, um, you know, possibly doing some writing together mm. out of nowhere. I was living on 7th Street in a walk-up apartment in the East Village. And uh, you're really trying to, fi- like everybody else, trying to figure out, you know, how to keep my spirits up to mm-hmm. go forward because this is all I ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so this, this, this ray of light, you know, yeah. came into my world. And we met uh, at a coffee shop on, um, I think it was 57th Street and Broadway. Mm. And just started talking about doing some writing. He said, well, let's do some writing together. And then, you know, if it works, that's good. And I'll do, I'll produce another album for you. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, Dan was the comp- comp- one of the great producers ever. Yep. I mean, and, and so mm-hmm. this was exciting to me. So we started writing and really started having some success fairly quickly. What were some of and, the early songs? Tell us, because we're going to well, sprinkle well, them in. Well, the first, I well, them. I was still... I was still proofreading, mm. and there was a, I don't know if there was the first, uh, I guess at the beginning of hip hop, mm-hmm. there was a breakdance movie called Breakin'. So good, yep, <laughs> I love it. Right? Yeah. Okay, so um, Dan got a call from I think it was Russ Regan. I think it was Russ at the the time, the music supervisor, and nobody really wanted to write for this film because nobody really thought anything was going to happen. And um, he called up Dan. He said, look, I'd love you to write a song for the film. And um, so Dan said, of course, you know, let me think about it. So then he spoke to me and I was still proofreading it at the time and he wasn't so eager to do it, but we would be getting a writer's advance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which of course to me was like, you know, a year's (laughs) worth of rent. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I said, let's do it. And Dan said, well, if you can come up with a lyric, because the way we wrote was I always wrote the lyrics first. Mm. And then Dan wrote the melody and the music to my lyric. That's the way he liked to work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty much like 
Bernie Taupin and Elton John work. Right. And so, uh, of course, I went, I went and I cooked up a lyric in like three, four hours, gave it to him. He loved it. Wrote a song called, this song was called uh, We Are the Young. So and, good. Um, I love that song. Yes. But, but here's what happened. That didn't get onto the album because uh. what happened was what happened was Dan was doing his own album at the time that Jimmy Iovine was producing. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy said, you can't give that song to the film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Dan didn't. And so it, it, I think it went on. Uh, we, it, it went on to his album and was a single and it did okay. It did mm -hmm. well. Not, mm -hmm. you know, however, Russ, of course, um, you know, had already, I believe this is, it's been a while, but I think these were the facts, that, uh, that he, they had already did a dance scene. Mm -hmm. And um, this, this to, the, to the track and the beat. And so when, when they found out that uh, they couldn't have the song, uh, they asked Ali and Jerry <laughs> to write a song. There's which, no stopping by the way, us. that became number one. I love okay. that song. I didn't know right. that they were connected. Right. So, no wait. Way. So, so the road, We Are the Young was like number 25. It did okay, but, uh -huh. but okay. So what happened was Dan and I wrote another song called Heart of the Beat. Yes. Um, which is in the, 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 the movie Breaking.
Uh, of course, we couldn't get any artists to sing it, so Dan and I sang it. Mm-hmm. And he decided to give our uh, uh, the debut of this group of ours, this hip hop group of mm-hmm. Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight, the name Three V. Oh, so, that's right. So if you go on the album, if you if you ever you had any access to I have to it. the breaking album, yes. there's Three V Heart of the Beat, and that's Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight. I have okay? always wondered. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, now so, so that got on the album, uh, but you know the the big hit off the album, of course, was there no stopping us. Yeah. But that was the first success at that, and I was still proofreading at the time. Uh-huh. Um, but I was I was able to get a, a publishing deal from that, and you know then didn't give up my proofreading yeah. for a while because you know we were making fifteen dollars an hour. Right. And um, that was like amazing. Yeah. One of the other great songs off of that uh, I Can Dream About You album that did pretty well was Second Nature. You had a handle, hand in that one too. Yeah, no, I wrote second. I wrote second nature with with Dan, and that was. I still think that's a great, great song. That should. I mean, again, it charted. It did well, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, if that song came out today, with maybe a few adjustments on sonically, I think mm-hmm. it would still be a timeless, timeless smash. You know. But second nature was, and we went to L.A. to do this wild video with like hundreds of extras mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with smashed watermelons <laughs> and, I remember. you know dancing whatever you know and it was great it was a great time and um you know it was a yeah second nature we wrote i mean i think i wrote the, the except for i can dream about you which yeah. i didn't write with dan i think i wrote the whole rest of the album with him. right i love that album um thank you i another and uh, along those same lines he was as you kind of have already touched on, he had so many great songs on soundtracks at that time. Um, Breakin, right. also the Fletch, "Get Out of Town." Did you? Yeah, which I wrote co- with him. Yeah, yes. I wrote that with him too. <laughs> Thank you. 
Get out of town. Get out of town. Love yeah, it. I mean, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. So how did that happen? And one thing I've always been curious about is if that was a song that you already wrote and then Fletch asked if no, they could no. have With, it or see, if you wrote was, it for the I was for, Yeah, I was fortunate because Dan Hartman, people came to Dan Hartman for songs. And so... I mean, obviously, I grew into, you know, my, you know, in, I guess into my own visibility. Mm-hmm. But, that, you know, we never pitched songs. Uh. I've, I've never really pitched songs. And I've had songs in over 40 films, mm-hmm. you know. So, but at the beginning, people just came to Dan. Let's, we need a song for Fletch. Great. You know, so I go and write a lyric and Dan writes it and it gets on, it gets on the album. And it was, it was not, we never wrote a song and then pitched it. Mm. I've never been in that songwriting circle that let's write and let's pitch stuff. I've been, you know, sort of, I've been very fortunate like that. Good. Okay. Yeah, I love that song too. And one more kind of off the, you know, not on the radar, great song was also Waiting to See You from Ruthless People. slowly through the warm rain and before you're even here I see you running to me rush into my arms nothing stands in your way come back like a dream from my past Great song. Yes. Yeah, you, I wrote, you wrote that too. I wrote that too with that. Again, they, you know, they just, you know, the music supervisors or whomever it was at the time would just, you know, or or the publisher would call, we were with the same publisher, and they would call Dan. And, um, you know, and Dan was very strong about this. He felt um, that what he had accomplished and with his talents and he was never desperate and he, mm-hmm. he, he imparted, uh, he, he imbued me with that feeling, never be desperate because if you're doing really great work and, um, and you get it out there, something good will happen. So Dan was very strong. We, mm-hmm. he, he, when people came to him to write a song, the deal would be that that song would be in the film. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be send me a song yeah. and we'll see if it works. But we would talk very, you know, we would, we would talk to a director or a producer. We would have conversations about, you know, what uh, the ballpark that they wanted the song to be in. Mm-hmm. And then I would go and write a lyric, usually four or five pages of lyrics, because mm-hmm. 
I knew Dan was going to change whatever I gave him anyway, so I would give him four or five pages so he wouldn't ask me to change anything. He'd have a lot of choices, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, and that's okay. basically, you know, how, yeah. I love it. Uh, okay, now that leads us then to, like, the mother of all your soundtrack songs, I think, probably, and that's Living in America for Rocky Four with James Brown. How right. did this happen? Tell us the whole story. Well, well once again... Robin Garb was the, I believe, was the music supervisor. And this came through, uh, I think it was Pat Lucas, who was uh, really one of the greatest publishers, We, I forget, you know, and mm -hmm. she was our publisher. But Robin Garb had called up and actually, same thing, I believe, you know, wanted, um, had an idea to have James Brown, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do this song for Rocky IV um, because, you know, Sylvester Stallone, um, I think, probably wanted Survivor again or mm -hmm. somebody like that, you know, that, <laughs> right. because that, that, that's what he liked, but sure. Robin wanted something different. And he thought of James Brown. But the directive basically was James Brown wouldn't write the song, and they wanted some kind of, they wanted a song that could, uh, make the charts because at that point james brown wasn't making the charts a lot mm -hmm. okay even though he was still like had more hits than any other black artists in the world at the time mm -hmm. you know so um you know so we went out to so that that's what ha that's how we got the gig and so we went out to los angeles to uh to talk with uh, sylvester stallone and we went to the set and um he came out to talk to us and we spoke to him about uh, what he was looking for, and he was still—he was great, mm. and and he he really respected songwriters, and he said basically that, um, you know, you guys are the writers, uh, so you know, I just want something that's going to be really up and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, uh, not not necessarily flag raising, but he wanted something that was really positive for that spot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, talked about the spot and what it was going to look like. And um, I think we, were, we went into his trailer and talked about it. He came off the set and he was really the easiest to talk to ever, you know. Great. Great, great guy. And um, so then we were staying in, um, in L.A. at that time. And I was staying at an apartment right behind Spago's. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with L.A., but yeah. it was a very big restaurant at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was sitting around, sat around the pool and started thinking of these lyrics and this idea of living in America. And I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be positive about America, but I wanted it to be more about the vista mm. and not about, mm. you know, uh, you know, not that I, not that I don't believe in, in America is great, you know, as a, you know, uh, as you know, in, in my mm -hmm. thinking, because I still mm -hmm. think it's a great country, but I wanted the song to be something else. So I wrote about the, um, the landscape, basically. Um, and uh, so, and then Dan, you know, I was sitting around the pool and writing this, and Dan came down. He was staying up, I think, up the street at, uh, at Neil Sedaka's apartment mm -hmm. that he had in, mm -hmm. um, in Los Angeles. And um, he said, great. And went off and started writing the music, and we got together and we started thinking of how we could write a chorus 
that um you know was i guess a little more poppy but a little mm-hmm. more um you know melodic mm-hmm. and um you know that when i i didn't write the melody dan wrote the melody but uh, he so that's what we were aiming for something mm-hmm. that they feel that they could get felt that they could get on radio yeah and Bessie, that's how you know that's how it happened, and um, they put it what three minutes into the movie. Yeah. So yeah. that was a, a huge reason for its success, and we were there. They flew us to Las Vegas. You were in the room to, uh, during the filming of that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MGM, the <laughs> yes. MGM Grand, and we were there. They flew us there, and it was really wild, um, and it was an amazing experience to be yeah. there and actually see it all filmed and be so intimately involved because, uh, and, and I know that, uh, Sylvester Stallone, I think they wanted us there because we had worked with James Brown and mm. he was uh, supposed to be difficult, but he really mm. wasn't difficult. I mean, we did a whole album with him. Yeah. And, gravity. And he, yeah, gravity album. Yeah. And, you know, we hung out a lot and, uh, you know, like with any other artist at some point, yeah, when James Brown comes into the room for the first time, you're in complete awe. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, like everybody else, you just got to do your job. Mm-hmm. And whatever your job is, if you're constantly in awe of the person there, you can't do the job. Yeah. So we did a whole album with him and, you know, and it was great. We hung out and once in a while he wouldn't show up for whatever mm-hmm. reason, but that was okay because he's James Brown. Mm-hmm. And... um mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, so we went to Vegas, we went, when we went to Vegas, we were there, I think, because, uh, you know, he was, they had heard that he was possibly difficult to work with, but Mm -hmm. he was not, not with us. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, I, uh, that soundtrack, that movie and soundtrack are still so beloved to this day, I think, not, um, Anyone who grew up watching that movie as often as it was on TV, which is still just about every day, it uh, oh, like I've God. talked to Robert Tepper a couple of times. I love him. Right. Um, there's just a magic to that soundtrack, and uh, I think it's, I think it's, it holds up. Do you feel that way too? I mean, we've talked about all these soundtrack songs. Do you find that people have an extra special? affection for that particular song or that particular soundtrack more well, than maybe some of these others? I, I, I think, I think, you know, a lot of it depends on who's, you know, controlling the music. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, they wanted, you know, what they considered to be great songwriters mm-hmm. writing great songs mm-hmm. and not just trying to cherry pick from, you know, what, uh, you know, from, let's say, uh, whatever label, mm-hmm something was coming out on and i think that's what made it you know what made it a great album um you know what's interesting is that i've written for so many um films and been on so many soundtracks and of course living in america because it's james brown you know it has Mm -hmm. has such a a, an an, it has such import Mm -hmm. and has such a an impact has had such an impact on my career and the way people look at me so that's one thing but really you know uh, honestly, like the breaking soundtrack, mm. so many people that grew up with that, they found out they find out I'm three V because it sold three million <laughs> copies. It was a hit album. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're three V, and suddenly get they they go, oh man, I have that album. So, you know, and then, you know, it depends because every, every single project I do, yes, James Brown, 
that's amazing. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that's a credit that you can only fantasize about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but every no matter what you do, to me, in, in a sense, the satisfaction is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you finish that song and you think you've really nailed it, and then the artist really loves it, and then the production is great, you feel great. That mm-hmm. moment feels the same no matter what. And of course, when it's a hit, that adds to yeah. it. Yeah. But but each situation, and you know, for instance, Hillary Duff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did so much. Uh, all those people that grew up with her. Yeah. I mean, if I do a lecture and they want to know about Hillary Duff. That's wild. That's you a little after I mean? my and, time, but I I know that you did a ton of work with her, and she was right, for right, and 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 so you know, and then there's a a a, a Disney. Uh, film called um oliver and company i I was gonna ask you about that one yes right Uh, and there's there's a song that there's a song called why should i worry that billy joel sang right Mm I mean, kids grew up with this. My daughter went to school, and they, you know, when my my daughter, when she was going to school at, uh, at a certain age, you know, they said, yeah, Dad wrote, why should I worry? Wow, you know, so, I mean, you know, you get it different sides from different people, but living in America, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. um, is is sort of unique yeah. in, that, in that James, there weren't many people, I mean, I think that was the only hit that somebody else wrote for James Brown mm-hmm. and it might have been his second big hit biggest yeah, hit ever. You might be right. So so it's it's in and, and I, I don't know if my facts are all right, but it's it's mm-hmm. in a certain different class. But look, you know, I wrote a song that Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. sang. How many how many songs by other people does she do, right? right? right. So that's another type of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. when I talk in front of people of a certain age, I'm telling you that James Brown has great import. But Hillary Duff, I'm telling you, God wow. bless Hillary, <laughs> nicest person in the world. That's you know? great. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, let's talk about that Oliver and Me um, song. I uh, Oliver and Company. I'm sorry. I remember yeah. so well seeing that movie. I had I was uh, 15, I believe. 14, 15, I had a girlfriend named Christy Moffat. And one time she introduced me to her friend, <laughs> Reagan Snowden. 
and Reagan and I had some chemistry. And so after I broke up with Christy Moffat, uh -oh. I, I met Reagan Snowden at the mall. Our parents had to drive us because we didn't have driver's licenses. And we met on a date and it was very illicit because I didn't want Christy Moffat to know that I was on a date with her friend. And we You're went, I know, and we went and saw Oliver and company. And uh, I, uh, that, and I never saw her again. I have no idea where she went. And this was, you know, this was back in the eighties. I, there's no social media. I've never seen her since, but well, I will don't, never don't forget. Don't blame it on me and my song. I mean, <laughs> no, you can't blame no. it on me. Like you said, what are you bringing me to see with this stupid song? You know, <laughs> no, that song and that movie, you know, crystallized this evening even more in my mind. I, you talked about <laughs> Billy Joel earlier. Is that the connection? Is that how you got him to sing this song on the soundtrack for you? Well, you know, what happened was they wanted him to sing. It's it's a soundtrack really filled with, uh, you know, well-known artists. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, they they wanted him to sing. He didn't want to write the, he, he didn't want to write the song. Mm. Okay. So once again, you know, at, at this point, Dan and I, you know, were known as a team and they asked us to write the song, and um, and we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's just that Billy wasn't interested in writing the song, but then Phil Ramone, who had produced so much of Billy's music, he he produced it, um, and you know Billy sang it and did. He did it. Billy, another another one of the yeah. greats. You know yeah. that that was a complete honor and. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. and Good. what was great about that was I'd written the song and I had this um, line in it and I made up this phrase, B-bopulation, <laughs> and they put it into the script. Really? Oh, that's right. Yeah. I don't think I've seen the movie since then either, by the way. But yeah, yes. and, 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 and I'm wondering, you think I can sue them for writing credit? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's too late, you know, I don't know. But, uh, but it was really great, you know, because this, this was before the days of digital. Mm -hmm. And when we went, we went to the Disney studio. And uh, so the, um, the, the, the director was just took us around the wall with all the sketches of mm -hmm. what the movie was going to be like. And he started talking in the different voices of the different characters. Mm. And it was... It was amazing. It was, it was, again, another completely unique, wonderful experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. It seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, we're jumping around a little bit and we're going to touch on a lot of this stuff. I have a lot of questions about kind sure. of one-off things you did, but I want to talk about Joe yeah. Parker because it uh, seems like, yeah. you know, you, you and Dan have this amazing partnership and then I don't know if it ends. I don't know, you know, how it ends or what, if it does or whatever, but your next sort of, you know, colleague or collab major collaborator appears to be Joe Cocker at that point, right? Well, you know, I have Dan Hartman to thank for that. Really? And yes, because I had no desire to be a producer. Mm. And um, there was uh, my, my first foray into it was uh, a band in uh, a Dutch band in that was going to record in London. And Dan actually didn't want didn't have the time to do it so he said you're going to do it mm. i said what do you mean <laughs> uh, you know i really i was not um that was not anything i was aiming to do or that i even thought that i had the you know ability to do mm -hmm. even though i i had my own bands for years and knew how to work with bands and musicians and write songs 
anyway, so um, after that experience in, in London, producing the band, um, which really I broke out in hives every who, day. Yeah, and then, who, but, do I know who this band is? Well, uh, yeah, you probably don't know them. Mm -hmm. uh, they were prominent for a while back then. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and you could probably read it on my credits, but let's okay. get past that band okay. to Joe okay. Cocker. Okay, okay. good. You got so, it. Uh, so, yeah, so then um, Michael Lang was looking for mm. a producer for Joe Cocker. You know, Dan thought this would be a good time for me to really break out as a producer. Mm -hmm. He's the one that pushed me into it. And he said, you know bands, you know great songs, mm -hmm. you know about arrangements, you know how to work with musicians. There's no way that you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so Michael Lang, you know, who, you know, the iconic mm -hmm. producer of, uh, of Woodstock. Woodstock, right? Yeah, yeah, Michael Lang was Joe's um, manager at the mm. time. And, you know, we had a meeting with him, and Michael was great, and Dan said, I think Charlie, Charlie should do this. And Michael said, you know, Michael is just like he comes off in Woodstock. He's, he's laid back, but he's really brilliant. And he said, okay, well, let's do half of the record. Let's see how it goes. And so I started working with Joe in the way that I knew how, which mm -hmm. was to rehearse a band. Mm -hmm. And um, and everybody liked the um, the result, so I wound up doing the whole album, which was the Unchain My Heart, which yeah. you know we had some real success with. And then, of course, the One Night of Sin album, which, mm -hmm. again, we had a lot of success with. And, you know, working with Joe was, you know, Joe was, you don't produce Joe Cocker mm. vocals. Yeah. Joe goes in, just like with James Brown. You don't say, hey, James, can you give me a little bit more of this or more of that? You know, you record them, you, you do a few tracks, and you comp things together, mm -hmm. and that's what you do with these great artists and mm -hmm. 
for me, sitting with an artist, you know, working with an artist like James Brown or Joe Cocker, I'm such a fan that uh -huh. it's amazing to be there. Even though you have to do your job, the sense of wonder never leaves that whole thing. Uh -huh. God, where did I grow up in Bensonhurst? Yeah. <laughs> My father was a factory worker. How did I get here? Right. You know? Because I had, when my record came out, I had opened for Joe Cocker. Really? Yes. Whoa. Which, of course, of course, when I came in to produce him, I mentioned that to him, and I could see he didn't remember, mm -hmm. but he was really a gentleman and pretended to remember. <laughs> so, um, you know, but it's really funny how that worked out, right? Yeah. It's really, yeah. you know, and uh, it, was, it was really ironic, and, and so for me it was... Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like a dream. That's great. You know, I was a huge, I was a huge Joe Cocker fan. Yeah, uh, you know, and went to see when I at the Fillmore East. I went to see uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Oh and, man, uh, you know, classic. That's in, great. In awe, in awe. And you know that Joe's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I do, and uh, there's this excellent documentary that came out a couple of years ago on him, and um, you really understand him so much better, and. I um, that becomes a topic of conversation near the end, and guys like Randy Newman are like, "What? Joe Cocker's not in the but, Hall of Fame? Why not?" Well, B Billy Joel. Yeah, Billy Joel, I'm, I'm in that. I'm in that documentary. I I, I wonder. Don't know, maybe. Yeah. Maybe you passed. Maybe I was in there too quick, but I'm in there. Okay. But, um, but Billy Joel actually talks about that, and that he actually wrote um, a letter to the Rock and Roll mm. Hall of Fame about that. Um, which to me is, you know, mad to, I mean, just for the performance at Woodstock alone. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you know, uh, but then again, all of these, uh, hall of fame situations regardless are, you know, a little bit political, a little bit about the taste yep. of the people are, people are in there, but, um, it's, it is a little bit, I, I, I you know, I did two albums for the Doobie Brothers and you know yes they're not in the Rock and Roll oh, Hall of Fame and I, think, I, and, and I think there were six years I mean there's been a campaign six years when they were the mm -hmm. biggest band in America yes um, selling over 40 million records so I mean I don't know I agree and um, I've got a lot of Doobie questions for you because they're like a top 10 favorite band of all time of mine let me tell you a quick Joe Cocker story so I sure. um, I got the One Night of, in, One Night of Sin album and um, I loved it. And the song that you wrote, Letting Go, track four on that album, yeah. that was a staple yeah. of every mixtape I ever made for a girl uh -huh. in high school. You can look away But you can't disguise Love shines so brightly It's gone from your eyes it wasn't my mistake It's nothing you did wrong Sometimes learning to surrender Is the same as being strong Letting go Letting go The hardest part is knowing That I miss you so I'd like to wish you well Oh, but it hurts you more Sometimes doing what is right Means letting go Yeah 
as we walk away. <laughs> and, and all of the every ex-girlfriend or whoever is listening to this like I remember that song. John put that on a mixtape for me. And I remember at the time, and maybe you remember this too, talking about the uh, Hall of Fame and who's in charge of this thing. I remember when that album came out, and I think it only got like one and a half stars or something in Rolling Stone. I know. I know. I, I was know. It, so it, mad. It was I, devastating to me. That's why, it. I'll tell you, every other review was good. Yes. yes. Only the Rolling Stone review was not good. And, and it, you know, it has, that album has, gotten me a lot of work because mm -hmm. it's well that's my favorite album that's you yes. know so hey it's just one of those things but um you know i it, the the unfortunate part of that is because i got one and a half stars i had in rolling stone i did not get to produce the next joe cocker oh, record shoot. but that was fine he had to move on anyway yeah. so, so you know but no i'm I, the fact that you remember that and that you react to to that is very satisfying to me because that you can imagine at that yes. time, Rolling Stone was so influential. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know that that when you see that it's you get a little crestfallen, but you know, re regardless, it it had it 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 was a very successful yeah. album around the world. So, it was. Yeah. So let me let me tell you. So I at I'm 16 years old, and I wrote a letter to Rolling Stone magazine. And I said, and because I used to read it all the time and I was hoping maybe my letter would get in the letter section at the beginning. And I was like, how dare you give uh, One Night of Sin one and a half stars? I, my I'm a big music guy. My collection includes things like Sgt. Pepper <laughs> and Dark Side of the Moon. And this album is just as good as those other things. I never heard back. I never, you know, it was never published. And in fact, now I probably imagine them having it like on the wall like can you believe what 16 year old sucker sent uh, this letter saying one night you mean, you mean that sergeant pepper but that's how i felt yeah, you at mean the time that, uh, you know i'll tell you god bless you <laughs> and obviously it was it, it's a 16 year old genius yes who has amazing taste <laughs> and um you know uh, yeah i mean you, you gotta look you know you wrote as you probably know i think in in you just got to roll with the punches, basically. Yeah. And it didn't really affect my career right. adversely. Right. So because so many people love the album. And, yes. But that, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't even like to read reviews anymore because you never know, especially today, that, you know, where with with social media, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much hate out there and people, you know, just because they like to will tear things apart, yeah. you know. True. And I always warn artists of that when I work with them. So I work with a lot of independent artists. I said, you have to have some tough skin mm -hmm. and you have to really believe that what you've created has value yeah. because, you know, people can, they have access now to say anything they want. Yep. Anyway, That's I really true. appreciate your letter to Rolling Stone. And um, if you have a copy of it anywhere, I want to frame it and put it on my wall. Okay? <laughs> if I find it, maybe it's in my mom's closet somewhere. I'll, I'll let you know if find, I ever find it. Find it, okay? Because okay. I'm going to put it right on my wall, okay? Good. Okay. Uh, before we get to the doobies, let's close out Dan a little bit. I don't know. Um, okay. He, I, so as I said, I've, I've had an affection for Dan, you know, as long as I've liked popular music. And it was really nice talking to Blanche, who you mentioned, because I've always worried that, you know, he died of AIDS and he was he yes, wasn't like yes. a star, but he was this great behind the scenes guy. 
You know, he's he's writing and producing for other people, music that you love, but he never quite got over the top himself. And I've always worried that he was closeted and deeply unhappy and um, had to live a lie. But she no. made it sound like, no, he was out and proud and perfectly happy. That kidding? was not what it was. Uh, no, Dan, no way. Dan was very happy. Everybody who knew him, I mean, he did not hide his sexuality. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, before we started, when we first started writing together, he said to me, um, I just want to let you know I'm gay. Mm. And well, I just, I said, I just want to warn you I'm straight. So <laughs> let's, you know, what can I say? You know, uh, you know look, yeah. look, you know, uh, he's, you know, really his, his generosity of spirit towards me and towards other artists who he thought were wonderful were, were of, of, of great magnitude. Mm -hmm. You know, he had, he, to me, not only was he one of the great artists and I mean, he never reached the, uh, the, let's say the superstar uh -huh. artist fame, but certainly his respect, yes. um, amongst an enormous amount of people, uh, in the business and outside of the business, like yourself, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, he, he had, he had great, great respect and people had great, great love for what he did. So, you know, I think, look, his accomplishments, you know, like you said, a legendary, whether or not he achieved super soul, superstardom. It's comforting to hear you say that, because I'm so glad that that was the case. And I that he wasn't. Look, I, the, I, I have an interesting guy. story that yeah. this is really interesting. So I was producing a band in um, New Jersey at, the, at a great studio called the House of Music, which mm. doesn't exist anymore. I did a Joe Cocker record, etc. And it was really wonderful because they would, I was, you know, I was living on 11th Street in Manhattan. And, you know, when you worked with the studio, they sent a limousine to bring you out to New Jersey, which to me was awesome, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, my wife uh, was pregnant and there was a, uh, we were having a baby shower. Mm. And uh, and they had this huge lawn there, and so Dan showed up, and I didn't learn till years later that that was the day that he found out that oh. he had AIDS. Oh no! And he still came to mm. the baby shower. Wow! Wow! So uh, I didn't know this, and you couldn't tell. I mean, mm -hmm. and Dan was the most lively. Um, high-spirited person, um, the most fun to be with. Uh, I, I, I can't even tell you. It was a great loss. Good. It was a great loss for me and for, yeah. to, to all the people that uh, that loved him. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could do an hour just on Dan. I just love him so much. But let's talk about the Doobie Brothers because they are, yeah, they are... Um, like a top 10 favorite all-time band of, of mine, and you co-wrote The Doctor, which was their big comeback single.
How did it this happen? It was a big comeback. Well, you know, we were, um, I, I co-produced actually half of the album with, mm. uh, with Eddie Schwartz, a really wonderful Canadian songwriter. And, um, you know, we were called on, uh, Tom Wally uh, called on, I was, because I was having a lot of success, you know, I was coming off the Joe Cocker stuff and, you know, and that type of music, you know, the live mm -hmm. music and bands. And so Tom Wally gave me a call and, uh, you know, and, and I thought, okay, great. Let's, let me cover my bases and get this amazing songwriter involved also. Mm -hmm. Totally brilliant, Eddie Schwartz. He wrote a huge song called Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, yeah, I've heard it. <laughs> big, big, big hit song, right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so, you know, we just went there and, um, you know, uh, we, we were doing, you know, a lot of songs. We were doing rehearsals and then... Uh, uh, Eddie and I got together with Tommy and at his house at the time and uh, sat down and wrote The Doctor. Mm. And the three of us there, and uh, it was a little, had a little bit of a touch of, um, uh, you know, a, sort of a classic Doobie Brothers sound mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. was fitting for, uh, for Tommy. Mm -hmm. And um, that was their big, you know, comeback, mm -hmm. you know, record. And we had. It was a hit album. The song was top five. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember at the end of uh, the album when, you know, I got a call. Said, we don't need, think we have a single, but we're going to put out The Doctor because it sounds most like the Doobie Brothers. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was a big hit. So mm -hmm. which, you know, all that we know, you know, Socrates, yeah. all that we know is we know nothing. <laughs> so... There we go. Yeah, what's uh, what's Tom like to work with? I um and, and I, I've always had the impression that he um wants to sort of, it's his band, you know, and that's probably why he didn't no want him and Mike McDonald around. No, Patrick Patrick Simmons. Mm. Patrick Simmons is the soul of the band. Is he? I he's assumed. the only he he's the only one. Well, you know, he wrote he wrote their biggest hit, Black Water. Yep, okay. I love that song. I love so, him. Um, and, and Pat is the salt of the earth. We mm -hmm. keep in touch once in a while. And I did a, 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 his, a solo record for him, mm -hmm. uh, produced uh, for Japan. Mm -hmm. But um, no, Tommy is, you know, Tommy's got that touch. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can't explain it. It's just there's something in his voice and in the way he writes that makes a, 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 a connection. Yeah, with people, sure does. you know, and and it's it's you can't explain. You know, I've come to the conclusion you can't explain these things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just something in there, and so you know to work with. You know, he's very strong. Was very strong about you know what he wanted. That was it. And, you know, okay. Pat was Pat was amazing to work with, and you know, with the band also I think was John Hasek and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, John Hartman. That they always had two drummers and. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, yeah, it yeah. was it was it, it was it was not an easy gig because they weren't it, it wasn't their early days. Yeah, and when there's a lot of history between it amongst any band, things can be a little bit more difficult. But you know, we muddled through and I think mm -hmm. made a really, you know, 
yeah. good record. Yeah, I agree. I love them so much. And it, you were meant you touched on this earlier, talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I feel like in a way they went from being one of the biggest bands of an era, you know, that sort of mid seventies to early eighties, just one of the biggest bands out there, to almost being not forgotten about, but sort of underappreciated ever since. You know, it's like you don't all the love and affection that bands like the Eagles get. Let's throw some of that at the Doobie Brothers, because in my mind they were doing something similar and they were doing it better. You know. Well, you know, those things, for some reason, they didn't, I mean, they, look, there's great, they sold, I think, over 40 million albums, so certainly there's a lot of love for them out there, but I don't know, it's one of these things you can't explain, it's like Mm -hmm. the Joe Cocker, why don't they get that type of respect amongst certain types of people? I don't, I think they get plenty of respect, uh, I mean, they're still out there playing, Mm -hmm. um, from, you know, from people who are not judgmental, but just deciding what music they like. Yeah, yeah, okay? so true. But, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because they transitioned from basically Tommy's band to Michael McDonald, mm-hmm. um, which were two sort of um, mm-hmm. incarnations. Yeah. But, you know, no one, no one disparaged Fleetwood Mac, Mm-mm. you know, when... You know, Chris, Christine, perfect. You know, etc. So mm-hmm. I, I know it's one of those unexplained things. But you know, for some re- and and they wrote all their own music, so mm-hmm. they can't be disparaged because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Cocker didn't write really write most of his music, although I did mm-hmm. get him to write some things on on the albums that Good. that that I produced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then there's another you know uh, a group called Three Dog Night that had mm-hmm. probably more hit singles over a certain period of time. Than anybody, mm-hmm. and and they actually chose songs, you know, Laura Nero songs. Yeah. Um, you know, they they were, you know, and and I've spoken to those guys, and why why aren't they, yeah. you know, respected, you know, for yep. their for the way they Very chose true. the music and the amazing success that they had. Yep. You know, so so I think it's just yeah I I I don't I don't know I don't even try to weigh in on that mm-hmm. because I feel that you know whether it's like winning an Oscar or winning a Grammy winning anything um, who's voting and what do you like mm-hmm. there's no objective there's no objective measure you yep. know good point yep um, okay I want to ask you about some of your one offs I um, I want to ask you about when the lightning strikes again by Sheena Easton. That song is great. Yeah. 
And I've, I mean, she was big when I was a kid. Talk about people who've sort of, I've tried to get her on the show here and her people tell me that she doesn't really do interviews anymore. And I, so I feel like she sort of purposely distanced herself, but she was big for a while. And that song, I don't think would show up on a greatest hits album, but it's so good. How did it happen? Well, you know, same thing, you know, then you have a publisher, you know, and they want a song. So Dan Hartman and I, write a song and she records it you know i gave up trying you know you know trying to calculate or trying to figure out why one song you know becomes a huge hit and one song doesn't um i don't know i thought it was a great song um the rec company thought it was a great song so you know but sometimes i even forget i wrote that song <laughs> you know because the years pass by and yeah. then i go oh, i look at my catalog oh sheena Easton, i love that song but uh <laughs> No, she was so, um, you know, she was really, you know, red hot for yeah. a certain period of time. So I don't know. Hmm. You know, it's like uh, I wish, look, I, look, if anybody less than God <laughs> comes down and tells me, only if God comes down and tells me this is a hit song, mm-hmm. anybody else I <laughs> take with a grain of salt. Sure. Did you know her? Did you work with her? That's another no, question I have no, for you. All no. these people that have recorded your songs. Are you guys in a room together, or is it sort of hired hands? How does no, it work? not 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 for Sheena Easton. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of you see, it was still in the in those days. People were still asking what they considered great songwriters for songs. Mm-hmm. You know, today it's like you know the artist has to be. Yeah. involved in the songwriting you know so the landscape has changed a little bit so i mean most of the time unless we're producing something we really don't get to uh sit with the artists we just they call us and here's the song and they go great and they record the song mm-hmm. landscape has changed a lot yeah. you know this this was like this wasn't quite as good as the days of tin pan alley mm-hmm. but it was still in the days where um, A&R guys were very happy to look for great songs like, like Jay Landers, who did mm-hmm. the Hillary Duff, uh, who was the A&R person for all the Hillary Duff music, you know, and Jay has been Barbara Streisand's executive producer for 25 years, which is, you know, and I've had songs on Barbara Streisand albums, but, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Jay was all, always would go like Clive Davis. They had a similar philosophy. You need the song, you need the song. Mm-hmm. And so they would go to who they considered were really great songwriters mm-hmm. and and show them to the artist. If the artist didn't like the song, that's one thing. But those A and R guys were all about the songs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Okay. Yeah. I wondered. Um, another song from that era that maybe has a similar story is Sometimes by John Waite. Sometimes That I came home 
one day Your best friend told me you'd gone away Had enough of my wild misspent youth Now the tears in my eyes are the only truth Sometimes That guy can sing. I think that's the first song I ever got. No, I didn't. I had a song. I had a song on a Peter Chris. I'm saving the kiss stuff to the end. Yes, I'm going to ask you about that. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, (laughs) then then I'll go past that. But uh, no, the John Waite. Oh, I love that that song. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because I had was just working with uh, a couple of years ago with a a really wonderful artist named Don Miggs, who was and um, down in Florida. And the first thing he said to me was that that's one of my favorite songs. Yes. I go, wow, wow. I mean, yes. you know, you don't even know that people know the song. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's when something like that pops up, like what you just said, that's also really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because you do this work and you hope that it does affect people. Mm-hmm. And when you can actually hear that it does, you know, okay, it wasn't a hit song, but there's still a lot of satisfaction in that. Mm-hmm. It's a, that was an interesting period in his career because he had just had Missing You, and um, which is a ballad, and he's got short hair, and he you think you he you think he's a certain person, and then that Rover's Return album comes out, and it's it's harder, it's hard rock, and then he goes into Bad yeah. English, and you're thinking, I don't who's this John Waite guy? I don't know if I know him <laughs> like I thought I did. You know what I mean? But well, that sometimes I... is so good. Well, thank you. I, I think with John, who I thought had one of the great interpretive voices. Agreed. Um, you know, I Ain't Missing You. I, Jesus, that the second yep. you heard, that's one of those songs, the second you heard it, you just loved it. Yep. And part of it was his voice. Yep. Just like with Joe Cocker, You Are So Beautiful. I mean, I don't know if somebody else would have sang that song, would have sung that song, um, you know, other than Joe. So true. Uh, you know, the way he interpreted that simple song, if it mm-hmm. would have been you know, such a success, but, um, John, great voice. And we, 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 had, we tried writing a few things after that together, um, which, uh, he always changed directions. I mm-hmm. think that's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and of course that's the prerogative of an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wondered how the, what the story was there. You mentioned kiss. Let's get into it. You had the, if I look at allmusic.com, your first credit that I can see that goes to someone else is on a Peter Chris album, a song called Destiny. Yes. It 
And then, <laughs> right. And then later on, you yes. worked with Paul Stanley on his Live yes. to Win album. How did this, yes. tell us how this happened. How'd you get in the Kiss I have orbit? no idea how, I really don't remember how the Peter Chris okay. thing happened. I didn't even know what publishing was at the time. Mm. I didn't know anything. And I had written this song and somebody submitted, I don't even know who publishes the song mm. at this particular point. But, um, but yeah, it was on his album, and I, I, I even remember the, what the song sounds like, which I don't always do. Um, you know, so, no, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It felt good to get it on the album. Uh, I, I don't really remember the exact evolution of how it got there. You know, but Paul, the Paul Stanley was because um, uh, I, was, I I've been, was writing with Holly Knight, She's another legend. She's up there too. Yeah, I mean, Holly, Holly's, I love Holly. She's mm -hmm. one of the greats and she's a great friend. And, um, you know, um, and they got that Tina Turner musical mm -hmm. on Broadway. Now she's got songs on that. God oh, bless wow. her. You yeah. know, let's write with Peter. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote, uh, not with Pete, with Paul. So, right. Sorry, with Paul, the really nice guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we wrote the song together and um it's called it's not Paul me for it. anyone who doesn't know it's not me off of the live to win album right you tell me what you want then you try to tell me what i need but your smile can never sell me what i don't believe now the gun is in your hand and all the words are on your tongue They gave you everything when you were young You threw it all away when you were done You pray you found the chosen someone It's not me, I don't want to be I'm not the cure, I'm not your savior Now there's danger every second that you Yep. That's it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I just want to make yeah. sure that we I mean, plug it so everyone knows what we're talking about. Well, well, look, you know, I uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You sure. know, the, the, the plug, I don't know who's interested, <laughs> but whoever is, great. You know, but I appreciate <laughs> sure. it. Yeah. No, no, he's, it was, you know, and just, again, just, you know, really good guy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, they, we're all the same. You know, that, you know, some of us, you know, hit that combination and, you know, have some formula or something that strikes that chord. But when you get right down to it, all of these people, when you're writing a song, we're all songwriters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're producing, you know, every really good artist I've ever worked with, when they're in the studio, for me, at least when I'm working with them, you know, they just want to be great. Yeah. And if they get a little crazy in that process of wanting to be great, well, that's just because they they have this idea that they that that whatever they do, they 
They want it to be great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, that's what I found. I think it's a really, I mean, I love great musicians, and it's a great community to be in. Good. Okay. Um, okay, I, I said that I, we touch on business in here, and I want to ask you a question about, so you co-wrote the song Trust In Me that Joe Cocker had on the Bodyguard soundtrack. Yeah. And now Nick Lowe, great singer-songwriter, uh, has famously told stories about he wrote the song What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, which was covered by Curtis Steigers on that same soundtrack. And Nick right. Lowe has told stories about checks for a million dollars showing up unexpectedly in his mailbox because of the songwriting credit on a soundtrack that huge. And I don't know how to sensitively ask this other than just to say, did you have a similar experience? Well, I don't know if it was millions, but I had a similar experience. Okay. Yes, because the album now, you know, it's the sixth biggest selling album ever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's over 40 million copies, something like worldwide. I think Goodness. it's over 20 million here. No, I mean... In those days, yeah, when an album, it doesn't, albums don't sell that much anymore, except maybe if you're, you're Adele. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, and, 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 and remember, when there's only, I think we had three, three writers on that song, mm -hmm. uh, Mark Swirsky and Francesca Begay. And it was originally on Francesca's album, mm -hmm. by the way, Trust in okay. Me. And, um, and I think it got into The Bodyguard because, um, uh, no, it was it was on Joe's album. Okay. It was on Joe Cocker's album, Trust in Me, right. And um because I heard that Kevin Costner is a big Joe Cocker fan. Mm. So there you go. There they were we temping go. it. I, this is a story I heard. They were temping mm -hmm. it and it was well, let's just use it. So mm -hmm. you know. Wow. And that uh so I mean you can tell the story or you don't, you can tell me to not ask and cut it out if you want, but did something similar happen to you where suddenly this large influx of cash suddenly shows up yes, next to this? Yes, of course. Yeah. Of okay. Course. Okay. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm not, that's a good thing to talk about yeah. because you know, those are the days when you could, the songwriter, you know, and, and remember I was, um, also the, uh, uh, producer on that. Mm. So, the Another checks point. came in from got it checks came in from both places and it was a good time yeah i mean you know an album sells if, if i mean today if you look at some of the songs as 10 11 writers mm -hmm. so 
how do you make money even if an album sells well? And you only have three, three, two, three writers on a song. And if it, if an album sells 10 million, 20 million copies, yeah. which doesn't happen really much anymore, you know, you, you got a, you got great checks in the mail and it felt really good. Yeah. Yeah. What did you, how did you celebrate? How did you, when that first <laughs> check shows up and I, you know, Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, or three hundred thirty-three, since you had to right. share it with three. What did you do? Did you go buy a new house? Did you buy a new car? Did you buy some wine? No, did no, you go on I just, vacation? What did you do? No, just showed it to my wife and said, you "What do you it? think? It's pretty good, right? You know, and get on with your life." But I think okay. it's not to me. It's not going out and celebrating, but it's knowing that you you have um, some security for a while. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think that's that's the feeling, you know, after most of us after struggling, you know, so much to to make a dent in 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 the music business. When something like that happens, you go, OK, maybe I breathe easy for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I had had a lot of success anyway mm -hmm. up to that point, mm -hmm. but um, it does. I think that's more the feeling. It is like, you know, I, I'll tell you what where I did celebrate. And that was with the um, break-in album, mm. because I was working as a legal proofreader when that yeah. came out and the album was a success and I was still proofreading. It was, you know, I was, uh, it was like, I think, two in the morning and I'm still proofreading and mm -hmm. somebody comes in and says, Charlie, you, you, this album you were on was a hit. What are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't get any money for it yet, so relax. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so, but, but I, I think it's... Uh, Go out and celebrate, but uh, first of all, yeah, that's great. That is great. I don't really I go out. And go. Yeah, I mean, you just feel like wow, this really. And it feel. I'll tell you what, though, it does feel really, really good. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Well, speaking of this, I mean, someone in your position, um, being a songwriter and a successful one too, but the business being what it is today, I don't know. Do you? How do you continue to make a living today? Do you? You know what do you, what does a day in the life of Charlie Midnight involve? Now? Well, I've been I'm busier than ever. We really? I do uh, work with independent artists. Um, uh, you know, and things are going well. I've been, you know, uh, you know, independent labels, and then, you know, I wrote for the last couple of Streisand records, mm -hmm. and um, and actually I get paid for if you want me to write with you these days i get paid good okay I unless you're my friend or or it's a project <laughs> right. i'm working on obviously but i do and i think that's what you know songwriters you know at some point when i mean i, I have the ability to do that because of my resume mm -hmm. but i think that you know the thing that's being missed a lot it is very hard for a songwriter i mean there's a lot of streaming services and mm -hmm. you know and if you if you uh, are an independent artist and own your own master, mm -hmm. because you get paid more from those services for a master than you actually do for the song, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, you can still earn a living. I don't know if you could make millions of dollars, but you mm -hmm. can, if you're putting out enough stuff and you get enough people to stream from all of the platforms, then you can still make a living. But for me, really not much has changed. I produce and I write, and, you know, I have you know, catalog. And mm -hmm. so I'm in a, you know, after all these years, I'm in a, I'm, I'm, I'm in good shape and I am just been busier than ever. 
Good. You know? And you live where? And are you still married? Do you have what your kids? What's your yes, personal situation? No, 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 no. I'm married. We're, it's like uh, we've been together 30 years. Nice. She was in a group. She was in a group called Kid Crow and the Coconuts. What? Yeah. Really? She was, she was a coconut. <laughs> you married her? No way. I married one of the coconuts. Exactly That's great. Right. <laughs> which, uh, which is my proudest moment. And good. this way, when I take her everywhere, I look good just because of the, being in the reflection, reflected glow of my wife. That's great. So, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, we've been married. We, we have a daughter who graduated NYU um, as an honor scholar, as a filmmaker who's right now in New York doing videos. Mm. I have an older daughter from a first marriage mm. Uh, um, when I, I was 19 years old, mm -hmm. and uh, and we're we're very close. But uh, we, my wife and I have one daughter, um, Shanti Shanti mm -hmm. Lake, and my other daughter is Hannah Child. My wife is Susanna. I, That's great. So when this podcast comes out, just remember to include their names in it. We will okay? leave all of that in. You got it. It'll be good for me. Good. It'll be good for me. <laughs> good. Speaking of names, you have to tell us how you came up with Charlie Midnight. It just you know, I was younger, and um, you know, coming from the background that I had, uh, the, you know, growing up in Bensonhurst, my father's a factory worker. I mean, the richest guy on my block owned his own cab that was rich mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I just you know, you want to create something, you mm -hmm. know, create a, a persona for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to it's show business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a performer. So I, it, just came, it just came to me one day. There was no real process. Okay. You know, one day, you know, one day I became, and it's my legal name now, so one oh, day I became Charlie Midnight. Okay. And, uh, and there, there it was, and it's been very good for me because people remember it, mm -hmm. and it allows me to, um, you know, to, to have, have a persona because, you know, it's show business. Look at everybody out there you know, trying to carve a, a, a place for themselves and anything you can do to carve out a place for yourself. Of course, the music and your talent is always the first thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all those great performers and people that we love, you know, mm -hmm. they created these personas for themselves. So yeah. that's, you know, it really, it, it, it really wasn't complicated. One day I just thought Charlie Midnight and I was singing back up for somebody at the time and I said, call me Charlie Midnight and they laughed. Love it. <laughs> and uh, I said, just do it, yeah. right? You know what? Yeah. You know, I mean. So, I mean, you know, Lady Gaga, yeah. right name. You of know, course. I mean, the second the second you hear it, you go, Lady Gaga. It's yeah. awesome. So, uh, I don't know. You know. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, I have two questions left. Uh, the one sure. one thing I want to know, and I, I'm going to save a question about a song to the end because I think we might go out on it. But um, sure, <clears throat> something I ask most of my guests. I want to know what just one of your favorite memories is. Um, it could be anything. I'm sure in a career that's gone on as long as yours, you've met some heroes. The, the sensation of writing a good song, of hearing it performed, hearing it on the radio, making the money, this, whatever it might be. When you look back on your career, what is that thing where you're just like, I cannot believe this happened to me? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that comes into my mind. If you wanted that, which was sort of an, uh, a moment, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really at the very beginning, and I was walking uh, in New York, uh, you know, where I'm from, mm -hmm. and um, so the traffic is stopped, and I hear 
part of the beat coming out of a car radio. Mm-hmm. And I actually, it was mine, and I know nobody, I wanted to scream that was my mm-hmm. song, you know, and so uh, I, the traffic was stopped, and I sort of went over to the car and tried to, said, hey, that's my song. The guy looked at me, goes, yeah, right, and he left. So that was like, <laughs> that was, you know, it was, that was quite a moment, yeah. because when you struggle a lot and suddenly you hear something like that, you know, we all look, it's true that the creativity has to be an end in and of itself, but we all look for affirmation, mm-hmm. you know, as we go along. And, um, you yeah. know, so I think, but I mean, that was, but also, um, I remember, and this, this, when we first did Living in America, mm-hmm. before we did the album, before it was in the movie, uh, Dan Harmon and I, uh, we were scheduled, we had the studio scheduled and, um, and James Brown was coming in. And so he walked in with an entourage and with Adrian, who was his wife at the time. And I was really, I mean, I had some anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. But there he came in. He was great. You know, this is James Brown. And so we had to record him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan mm-hmm. Hartman. And I had to he did not. He was given the demo, which Dan Hartman sang, uh, but of course he didn't really learn the uh, the words to the song. So I had to write out on huge pieces of paper the lyrics, <laughs> and I stood in the studio with him mm. and put the these big pieces of paper like you know like art paper Mm -hmm. on a piano and and stood there with him while he was going through the lyrics with him and i actually have and this is i think this is my proudest possession i have a copy of the chorus Mm. with james brown having signed it oh oh my gosh hung up oh wait this is the part so we did that when i was there's two great parts so when i was in the studio with him i did have that moment where i thought if only the guys in the old neighborhood could see me now Mm -hmm. that that was an amazing moment for me yeah okay and then what happened was when the song was done i spilled a little coffee on the edge of the paper that had the lyric and i thought to myself okay now it's art (laughs) So I had him sign it, and it says, you know, it's amazing. He says, you know, thank you for the words, all the love, James Brown. And so I think think if I had to choose, I mean, the moment when I first heard a song of mine, and, you know, that moment with James Brown um, being in the studio and Mm -hmm. realizing that, you know, I could actually do this and that I'm there with James Brown and whatever road, whatever, whatever twists and turns took me here, this is... This is a magical moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So I think, yeah. I love it. I love that. Uh, okay, I lied. There's actually two more songs I want to ask you about, but we'll be quick. Number one, I believe... Oh, okay, I'm good. Okay, good. I'm good, too. Um, number one, I believe... We were talking about Breaking, but around that same time, a sort of Kissing Cousin movie was Crush Groove. And I think you did a yes. song with Shaka Khan, Can't Shaka Stop the Street. Come 
come back through You'll stop the grounds hey, Another rap, another thrill, thrill Ain't no such thing as overkill, kill Sometimes you need some latitude But when you're out there working on your attitude Very sexy, electric shot Whatever's gonna get you by, guy Dig a new cachet, a new sachet And maybe we'll go all the way, all the way I mean, that was another, can I say, Chaka Khan. Can't, can't get better than that. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, it was, it was those days when there was, you know, the hip-hop thing was happening. And, uh, um, you know, luckily for me, Dan Hartman was able to produce in any genre. Mm. So, um, yeah, so Chaka sang that song. And, uh, yeah, another, okay. another great moment. I mean, yeah. can I say, my... Yeah. my uh, Good fortune, knock on wood, mm-hmm. uh, keeps going. But uh, you know, a lot of that early stuff had to do with uh, with uh, me being Dan Hartman's partner. Okay, I wondered because that was going to be my question: is how did how did two white guys become so adept at making excellent R and B? And it must be, I mean, it's your words and it's Dan's ability to sort of, you know, mold these songs into the proper genre to make them their very best, it sounds like. Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I think I've had a long career is because I do try to immerse myself into, uh, you know, whatever genre. I mean, I, 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 have, I won't mm-hmm. do rap, mm-hmm. you know, although I think I can do rap great, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. you know, like we all can, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, but but no, I mean, you know, it's a song's a song, and I'm a, if I do a Charlie Midnight, I'm just going to write what I for myself. But when I'm writing, look, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, you wrote for James Brown, um, uh, uh, Hillary Duff, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand. You know, well, how do you? How do you do that? I said, you know, each artist, you have to really understand who the artist is. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you know, get a feel. And each one of these artists are very strong. So you sort of have to immerse, immerse yourself into, um, into what they do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, Dan and I had, I guess, a similar um, ability to, you know, to go into different genres. Mm-hmm. I mean, even today, I still, you know, there's a variety of artists that I'm producing and writing for, and each one is, is different. Yeah. You know, but, oh, you know, look, we all come from, 
look, when I was growing up, you know, the greatest music was the great R&B music. There was, mm. there was Motown, there was Otis Redding, you know, uh, yeah. Marvin Gaye, you know, Aretha Franklin, and all of these amazing, amazing artists that you grow up with. And so you, you're, you, you, you put that into who you are. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I don't know, I, mm. you know, you, you get the job and you got to do the job. I'm not going to turn down the work. Right. So if it's a certain... If it's a certain genre, and of course Dan's ability, and remember he had all those huge disco hits. Yeah, true. You know, and and mm -hmm. I, yeah, and I can dream about you was really you know harking back to that almost mm -hmm. like a, a Motown Very type perfect. of yep. feel. So, Perfectly said. Yeah, so I mean, look, you know, uh, like I said, if you get the job, if you got the job, I'm happy to have the job, mm -hmm. and then you've got to figure out how to do the job uh, so that the person who you're doing it for likes it and mm -hmm. i think that um and that's what you got to rise to the occasion okay um good well we've scratched the surface on this I, but i got one last thing talk about genres sure. and diversity and everything american made by george thoroughgood What is it like oh working God. with George Thurgood? <laughs> I never worked with him. I, we, Didn't you? I wonder if you two were in the same room or what? No? No, no, not at all. Uh, okay. Jesus, that's, I can't even believe you know that song. Of course. But, um, but you know, no, I mean, it's another one of the songs that I had written with, uh, with some other people, and uh, it was pitched to him. Uh, somebody called and said, do you have a song? And I said, what about this one? And and he recorded it. Hmm, okay. So, I mean, it's one of those situations once again where I don't know. I mean, I, I write these songs and people <laughs> seem to seem to like them and record them. So, <laughs> it's really that for me, it hasn't been easy, mm -hmm. but it's been sort of that simple in its explanation. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, um, but no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I love that song. Good, yeah, it's a good one. I uh, I don't need every George Thorogood album, but I have his greatest hits, and there's tons of awesome songs on there, and that's one of them. And so I just was wondering, what must he be like to work with? But it sounds like he just picked your song. I, no, he just he just picked my song. Um, okay. You know, it's interesting the way things happen. And for instance, like the the, the Joni and and this is mm -hmm. the best story on how there's no specific way to get a song cut mm -hmm. or 
how do you become a hit songwriter? I mean, but so there was a song on the James Brown album called How Do You Stop? Hard bodies, soft emotions, so fast, so smart. The world's at your feet, but what about your heart? if you're familiar with it okay yes, anyway it's, mm-hmm. it's real r&b how do you stop mm-hmm. so we did a um uh dan hartman and i uh were on a cinemax special james brown and friends mm. where that was done in detroit and and where i joe Cocker was there wilson pickett um Aretha Franklin, mm. uh, and actually, when they did Living in America, Dan Hartman and I um, actually got to be on stage mm. uh, singing Living in America with James Brown, wow. and he introduced me as Brother Charlie Midnight, oh, so I can yes. legitimately use that moniker. Oh, so, I know, it's amazing. <laughs> but anyway, so Joni Mitchell heard this song, mm. and this is what I was told. And started working it up because she liked the song, because I guess it spoke to her because it's all about, you know, the passing of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got to be sung by somebody with experience who's looking back at things, right? Mm-hmm. And she started, and suddenly we're told that it's going to be on Joni Mitchell's next album. Mm-hmm. So on the... Uh, I think it's on the blue... What is Turbulent it? The blue Indigo. In, Turbulent Indigo album, right. Hard bodies Soft emotions So fast So smart The world is at your feet But What about your heart? Fame and fortune can't hold you tight. The late, late hours of the night. How do you stop? How do you stop? All before it's 
And it's a compl- it's a different version. She used her Joni Mitchell chords, and it's absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, uh, and that's how Joni Mitchell crazy got to record my song. That's you know, wild. and then yeah, I mean, it's wild. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's about you know you you try to do good work, and you keep your fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, you know, you know, actually, I I've been pretty fortunate down through the years yeah yeah i'm a big seal fan and um seal sings back up on that song with her yes he and does so, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's on youtube i'm telling you it's a gas yeah. I, I don't know what else to say it's like yeah. you know um he does sing back up on it and his his voice is so he's got this amazing angelic yeah. quality to his voice and uh i mean i think that version of the song I mean, they're both very different, uh, and they're almost like two different songs, mm-hmm. the one on the James Brown album and the one that Joni did. But Seal definitely um, added something very special to it. Yeah, he did. Well, um, Charlie, if you can't tell, I, uh, I love so much of what you've put out in this world. Thank you for well, being I, the you know, artist that you are. Well, and thank you for, first of all, for bringing back, you know, for 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 telling me you love all those songs that I had no idea anybody even knew. Okay, <laughs> so I appreciate that, and um, and yeah, I I appreciate how you that that this uh, podcast that you have looks to you know go behind the scenes and not necessarily with you know with people who mm-hmm. you know have contributed that maybe are a little under the radar, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, but, but you have this love yeah. of what they've done. And I think that's, you know, I think that's important right now. Yeah, I agree. And that's my, that's my whole hope is that that's why I find p- talking to people like you, especially so gratifying because, and that's why I mention all these songs, because I'm hoping that, you know, maybe half of these people will be like, I remember that song. I knew that song or I was a big George Thorogood fan or whatever. And then they piece together that the same guy is involved in all of this stuff. And it's it you connect these dots and it's just fascinating. And so that's why I thought it would be especially interesting to be able to talk to you because you've touched so many different things, so many genres, so many songs people know and love, so many artists people know and love. It'd be great to hear your story, and you shared it, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Well, I, I, you know, I, I do want to plug one thing, please, and that I, I will have a book coming out. Yes. And the book is the book is called um, uh, uh, "Deserves Got Nothing to Do with It." <laughs> nice. <laughs> Talking crap with Charlie Midnight, and crap is an acronym: C R A P P. Five ele- five elements that will help you survive Ooh. your emotional journey. Good to success and it's collaboration, relationships, ambition, passion, and persistence. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, it's, it just tells my story and basically distills down to, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. So if you want, if you want to get into this, you better have faith. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that's my little plug about that. You got it. And we're going to we're going to put the the link to your website in the show notes here so that if anyone wants to keep tabs on you or look at all the other stuff that we didn't even get around to, it's all on your website. So anyway, well, I appreciate that very much. And, and, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you, man. There you have it. Charlie Midnight. I love that one. I love so much of what he's done. I think he could tell too, which always makes me happy because it feels like we're bonding. They, When the guest recognizes how much I love them, that always makes me really happy. Uh, by the way, speaking of Dan Hartman, um, if anyone doesn't know this already, yesterday, Monday, January 6th, on the Pods and Sods Network, Eric Miller released an episode of me and Jeff Harris playing our favorite, some of our favorite Dan Hartman songs. So if you're a Dan fan, and you weren't aware of that, go look up the Pods and Sods podcast. And the episode yesterday is a Dan Hartman six-pack. And Jeff and I talk about how we became fans, what the music means to us, our feelings about Dan, that kind of stuff. I think you guys might enjoy that too, if you don't already know. Now, next week, we are talking to one of the most controversial artists of the last 30 years. Uh, You guys may remember... A couple years ago, we had Terrence Trent Darby on here, and it was a little weird. It got a little weird. Well, next week's episode, I would say, is kind of in Darby land a little bit. Um, You may or may not know who this person is, probably vaguely. Uh, When you see who it is, it may ring a bell that you know that this person did something really stupid a few years ago, got in a lot of trouble for it, and now we're going to talk about it with this person. And uh, that's, I'll leave it at that. So I would encourage you to come back because it's interesting, but it's also frustrating. So anyway, I want to close it out, by the way. I, again, I feel a little, a little bad because I know that Charlie did some excellent work with Hilary Duff and uh, deserves a lot of credit for getting her music career going. It's because it's not my thing, I didn't really dwell on it very much. But I thought we deserve to at least close it out with some Hilary Duff. So that's what we're going to do here. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all the great work you do. Thank you, buddy, for everything. Uh, folks, later this week, I'm hoping we're going to be able to put out our uh, 2019 year in review. It all comes down to Yan. He works so hard. If he's able to get it out, we're going to get it out there. Hopefully he does, and hopefully you guys enjoy this. You guys know how to find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We have new interviews every Tuesday, um, so come back next week if you're new, okay? Thank you, everybody. We love you, and Happy New Year.